Hey, Deserving Listeners, I compiled a bunch of emails from y'all about attachment theory, so I thought I'd get all those out of the way. Let's answer your patron emails about attachment theory. This first email is from anonymous patron. They write, is it possible to develop an insecure attachment as an adult? When I was 24, I had a very traumatic breakup. I'm 30 now, and I've been able to hold down a long, and I haven't been able to hold down a long-term relationship since that breakup at the age of 24. After breaking up, I now relate strongly to the avoidant attachment you described in your deep dive. End of email. Yeah. So anonymous patron here is saying that prior to being 24, she might have been secure, or at least mostly secure. She had a traumatic breakup when she was 24, and for the past six years, she would describe herself as being avoidant attachment. And often, when I talk about attachment theory and the way it's often discussed in in the literature, is that we develop our attachment theory in response to our relational environment when we're very young, um, one, two, three, four, five years old, and that that attachment style will persist into adulthood. And yeah, research shows that there is a correlation, but it's not a guarantee for sure. And research shows that later uh, events can change one's attachment style, uh, good and bad. So for example, in therapy, hopefully you are experiencing a secure attachment and will thus change your attachment style from being insecure to more secure. So you can become more healthy attachment-wise when you experience healthy attachments. Also, which stands to reason, if you experience damaging attachment experiences, then your attachment style will move more towards insecure away from secure. So uh, attachment style does morph over time, absolutely. And it's also dependent on your partner. If your partner is more undifferentiated, more insecure, then in all likelihood, you're going to move more towards attachment insecurity. You might have noticed this about yourself. If you've had enough partners in your life, you might have noticed with some partners, you seem to be way more insecure than you did with other partners. So there's that. It's dependent on that. It's also dependent on how the relationship is going. If the relationship is going well, then in all likelihood, both members are going to edge more towards secure attachment. Uh, mood, uh, society, you know, if society is uncertain or if society is treating you badly, then that obviously could edge you more towards insecure. And if society is treating you badly for a long period of time, then you might actually be permanently, so to speak, um, insecure. Um, you know, the, the important thing to remember is that attachment style is not a trait. It's a style of relating. That's why they call it style. Now, sometimes I discuss it and sometimes in the literature it's discussed as a trait, as something that is a part of your personality. And and I would certainly uphold that construction of it. But sometimes it's more useful to think of it according to its name, which is it's a style, meaning that it's a habitual way of managing closeness and the fears of rejection. You know, one can change one's habits temporarily. For example, when you have a need for recharging your battery, you know, you're, you've been working too much and you need to go on a vacation. You need to relax. Well, let's say someone, uh, they just love going to a Mexico beach. Whenever they think about uh, being burnt out at the office, they just think, oh, I just got to get to Cancun or whatever. 
And so for this person, they frequently have a need to relax and, and to not be burnt out at work anymore. And they have a style of meeting that need by going to a Mexico beach. So when they have that need bubble up inside of them, sometimes it happens two times a year. Sometimes it happens five times a year. Sometimes it happens every hour. Sometimes it happens once every three years. But as that need bubble, bubbles up for them, like, oh, I need to get out of town, they have a style that to meet that need, they go to Vegas or they go to Alaska or they go on a fishing trip or something. You know, people, people have styles and just look around you uh, regarding – Vacation. People tend to have styles. Not always, but the uh, point is, is that uh, you could imagine someone having a style. But imagine one year that their partner doesn't want to go to Mexico and instead wants to go on a hike. But you've never done that before. You like to go to a Mexico beach, but you want to please your spouse, so you adjust to that new way of meeting your need, which is hiking. You say to yourself, ooh, you know, I'd much rather go to a Mexico beach, but, you know, my partner really wants to go hiking. So, okay, fine. I'll adjust and I'll figure out how to meet my needs of relaxation through hiking instead, even though that's not my habitual way. Well, that's what an attachment style is um, in a certain angle of looking at it. It's just a habitual way of meeting your needs, and it can be adjusted with some effort. To further this analogy – in the past, let's say that you've been attacked by a bear while hiking. So you really do not like hiking because when you think of going into the woods, you think of that moment in the past where a bear attacked you. And you tried to go hiking again after the bear attack and you just cannot relax. And so when you think about relaxing and getting your needs met for uh, getting away from work, you do not think of hiking. You're just like, no, 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 uh, I do not relax when I go hiking. But let's say you put your mind to it and you, you're like, you know what? Bear attacks are pretty rare. And so I'm going to do baby steps and I'm going to start out with a little hike and then a bigger hike. And then eventually I'll habituate to hiking and then I can get my needs met through hiking. I can get my relaxation, vacation, recharge my battery needs through hiking. But I, the only way I'm going to be able to achieve that is if I habituate to that habit, if you will, by – having my body learn that hiking is actually not scary. People learn as children how to get their attachment needs met. For secure people, they learn that they can assume that they are lovable and that, that, and that others can be trusted. For secure people, when they, were being, when they were being raised, most of the time they were being treated in a way that told them that they were, good, they were a good kid and that they were lovable and likable and good enough and capable and worth it and worthwhile and you know important enough not all the time of course but enough such that the child says you know what the world is teaching me that i'm lovable and the world is also teaching me that i can trust other people for the most part not all the time but for the most part and so when i walk around in the world i have a style of relating to people that comes from that working model that, you know, I haven't been told anything nice to me today for a little bit of time, uh, or I haven't been shown today that my relationships are, are, are um, secure. But I know from past experience, since I was born, that 
I can trust other people that even though I'm not close, even though there's no direct evidence of them telling me that they love me today, I can trust that they do love me. Because when I was a child, that's what I learned over and over and over again was that love was constant. It was unconditional. It was stable. And so even though I don't have any direct evidence in front of me right now that my loved ones love me, I trust that they do love me. And I also trust that if I really want reassurance that I can ask for reassurance or I can I can uh, have a bid for attention or love by you know texting my partner or saying I love them or holding their hand and I and I trust that they will respond well because since I've been born that's how it's always worked out and so I don't have a complex about reaching out okay so that's secure attachment now of course securely attached people as we call them don't always have that perspective, it, you know, that's one of the falsehoods that often is learned by attachment theory is somehow that for securely attached people, they're always happy and they never get upset and they're never hurt. And this is just ridiculous. Um, no one is securely attached all the time. Uh, take it from me. Uh, for avoidant people, they learned early in life that in order to get their attachment needs met, it's best to turn away from people. For them, being vulnerable is they're hiking and being attacked by a bear. For the hiker who got attacked by a bear, they don't want to go hiking anymore. They learn that in order to get my my um, vacation needs met, I cannot go hiking. That's just that's just not a place to go. I need to go somewhere else to get my attachment needs, uh, my vacation needs met. I need to go to Mexico. So for the avoidant people, they learned being vulnerable is bad. Do not be vulnerable because although it seems like that might be a route to getting my needs met for attachment, it it did not work out in the past. So let's just, as a heuristic of, of rules to guide my life, let's not do, let's not be vulnerable because that will be bad. For pre- preoccupied people, it's, they learn early in life that it's best to amplify one's needs, to be ultra vulnerable, if you will. And for them to be temporarily separate is their hiking. For them, when they are left alone or when people aren't paying attention to them or when there's not direct evidence of contact with other people, they that's their hiking. That's that's their bear attack. And, and so they, they run from uh, being slightly separate from people because to be slightly separate for them when they were young usually ended up being traumatic for them. And so they, they learned that uh, to avoid separateness. And so they're in a constant state of of doing one style of relating to other people, which is to be extremely vulnerable, to be demanding, and to seek closeness on a constant basis. Because if they didn't do that when they were young, then bad things happened. In the same way that for the hiker, when they went hiking, bad things happened. So you avoid that, and you instead try to get your needs met through uh, only one way. So to extend the metaphor even further, it's probably best to get our vacation needs met in a variety of ways, particularly if we're going to vacation with other people because other people are going to have other ways that they want to vacation. And so to be routed into, you know, let's sort of take it to a severe case of let's say someone, the only way they can relax is if they go to Baja, California in Mexico that they just have to go to Cabo. That's that's their only option. They they everywhere else they just cannot relax. 
Well, now let's say, you know, they live in Minnesota and they don't have the money to get to Cabo or it's the pandemic and they don't have the, you know, the it's it's not possible to go there. Or their spouse just doesn't want to go to Cabo again or something. You know, there's just all sorts of reasons why you can't go to Cabo. But because this person is so rigid on going to Cabo, they they have to forego getting their needs met until they can get to Cabo instead of being flexible to other ways to getting your vacation needs met. Maybe just a, a day trip, maybe a road trip, maybe another place with another beach, you know, I don't know, Lake Erie or something. <laughs> but th- the point is, is that uh, when we get locked in on a certain way, then we are limited in our ways of getting our needs met. And that's what insecure attachment does to us is that for secure people, they have a lot of flexibility that can react to the situation. For insecure people, they're kind of routed into a limited way of getting getting their needs met. Um, it's not entirely um, accurate way of putting it, but I hope you get my my connection to the analogy. I'm I'm always curious as to what I'm going to do with my analogies, but anyway, the other thing here is that for some people they're a mixture. So to extend the analogy even further, some people like hiking, but only if the hikes uh, are short. And in nice weather. So if we're going with people that love to go to Mexico beaches, some let's say you have someone that, lo- you know, by default, they love going to a Mexico beach. But they also like to vacation but hiking, but only if the hike is short and in nice weather. These people often go to Mexico beaches, but sometimes they also want to go hiking if the conditions are right to get their, to get their relaxation needs met. In the same way. Uh, people can have a mixture of attachment styles where some people might amplify their, you know, a preoccupied person will amplify their attachment reactions to get their attachment needs met. But occasionally they also like to avoid others. And they also like to get their attachment needs met by just avoiding other people. They like to manage their attachments and to manage their worries of rejection by just saying, you know what, I give up on life. I mean, I give up on relationships, not life. (laughs) And so that's another thing that people will say, well, you know, I feel like I, I, I have parts of avoidant, parts of secure, and parts of preoccupied. Uh, I don't understand. Well, research shows, and anecdotally, that people can be a mixture. It depends. Now, for some, I will, when I talk with them, I will for myself, if I was to conceptualize it, and of course, it's just a conceptualization. It's not like a blood test gives us a reality of someone's attachment style. But the way I conceptualize people is such that a lot of times I will say something like, well, after talking with you, even though uh, you're framing it as a mixture, I would say that you're, you're actually more this attachment style. And sometimes this happens. Like, for example, some preoccupied people will say, you know, yeah, when I read the preoccupied attachment style list, I'm definitely that. But there are times in my life when I'm very avoidant. And so when I talk with them, they will uh, tell me their story and I'll, and I'll discover for my own conceptualization of them that I would say, yeah, I would absolutely call you preoccupied. But occasionally it becomes so overwhelming for you that you actually will just stop relationships because it's totally overwhelming. 
that's not avoidant style. Avoidant people are avoidant consistently usually. And in fact, avoidant is one of the most consistent attachment styles you'll find people because it, it's very stable. In fact, avoidant people tend to be very stable because of that reason. They they just aren't affected by other people. They don't even notice other people really because early in life they just neurologically turn themselves off to other people. And so there's a lot less factors, a lot fewer factors that will affect their mood and their life and they're they're so much more insular to themselves and so they will uh, they're suffering for sure but their suffering is is more consistent over time and so for uh, for someone to say you know what I'm preoccupied a lot but I, I'm temporarily avoidant that doesn't really fit the spirit of the concept of the concept of avoidant people because avoidant people are are uh, avoiding all the time. Now, uh, it just depends on how you look at it. You know, I, you know, another clinician might come come along and talk to that. My dog is barking at the um, male person. <laughs> uh, I swear. Yeah, you know, I go whenever my dog's like this. I, I go into the living room and I, I go to him. And I'm like, okay, you know, I get it. Um, thanks for telling us that someone's outside. That's great, um, but we don't need the ten thousand barks. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, with the pandemic, there's a lot of deliveries these days, right? You know, food delivery and blah, blah, blah. And so the the dog barking um, happens a lot. I mean, it you know, it's not a big deal. But <laughs> when I'm recording, I'm such a, uh, I don't know, what do I say? I'm, I'm such a rigid uh, uh, recording person. I, I like the recording to be pretty good. And so whenever there's an anomaly, I get um, a little miffed. But anyway. Hope it doesn't bother you. All right, let's go on to another email. All right, this next email is from patron Yasmin from Copenhagen. She writes, is it possible for you to talk about emotional manipulation and how it relates to attachment? What is an emotional manipulator? How is an emotional manipulator created? What went wrong in the mother-child dynamic that created a son that becomes emotionally manipulative in future relationships. End of email. Okay, well, so the first thing I'll say is that emotional manipulator is not a term in my field. Uh, I don't ever hear people, I'm guessing some clinicians talk about this, but it's an internet thing, I'm guessing. There's a lot of <clears throat> material on the internet uh, talking about, you know, narcissistic abuse, emotional manipulation, gaslighting, these kinds of things. And some people have said, I know Kirk doesn't like the word gaslighting. I don't, I don't not like the word gaslighting. I just think that it's overused. <laughs> and I also think that, uh, meaning that it's used too broadly to describe things that aren't actually gaslighting. Um, a, a lot of I th people are, are in, relationships where they feel hurt justifiably and they're looking for some kind of i don't know story or narrative to tell themselves as to why they got hurt why they got dumped by someone or why they got ghosted by someone or why someone cheated on them and they will look to the internet and the internet will provide these kinds of answers it's like well you know you dated an emotional manipulator that's what happened to you you know, you dated someone who was a gaslighter. You dated someone who was, you know, a narcissistic abuser. Uh, 
you you dated a you know a malignant narcissist. There's there's all these catchwords. I'm on the internet a fair amount, so I see this stuff too. And it it's not that these things aren't real. It's just that they're overused. Uh, you know, if if I don't know, but I'm guessing if you did a poll of like how many of your past relationships were either a gaslighter or emotional manipulator or a malignant narcissist, I would venture to say, according to a certain group of people on the internet, they would say like 80% of their, uh, as particularly men, because this is sort of a, a sort of a women uh, internet thing, potentially, that they would say, but, you know, men certainly do this as well, that they, you know, this group of people on the internet would say like, oh yeah, 80, 80 to 90% of the people that I've dated have been malignant narcissists. And that's just statistically not likely. It's likely what happened was a variety of things that led to the breakup. Maybe the person just wasn't into you. Maybe the person was immature. Maybe the person was uh, had traumas of their own and were being triggered. Who knows? There's just a variety of possibilities that are uh, potentially present when we look at a breakup. Um, malignant narcissism and emotional manipulation, as it might be conceptualized on the internet, it, uh, isn't necessarily like – now, are there malignant narcissists? Yes. Are there emotional manipulators? Yeah. There are psychopaths in the world. There are people who purposely try to hurt other people. I'm, no, I've met these people. I've treated these people. They're real. They're terrible. They're very destructive and they can be extremely – uh, scary to be around and will just create a wake of heartache and pain for themselves as well. I mean, that's the thing that people often miss about these these disorders is that for the individuals, uh, they do not usually benefit from their uh, disorder. People who have uh, narcissistic personality disorder, people who have uh, psychopathic personality disorder, people who are antisocial, every person I've met and treated and heard about with these actual disorders are suffering tremendously, not only just emotionally, but also in their lives. Their lives are train wrecks. And so to just look at someone and be like, they hurt me or they lied to me, they're a psychopath or they're a narcissist or they're an emotional manipulator is, you know, it's, it's not a clinical term. Now, you can say to yourself, I felt as though I was being gaslit or I felt as though I was being emotionally manipulated. That's fine. But to diagnose someone as they are this, they, you know, I have diagnosed my past partners as being emotionally manipulators. Well, now we're getting into clinical psychology uh, world. And that's, you know, that's where I'm going to say, let's pump the brakes for a second. Again, if you felt as though you were being lied to and if you felt as though the person treated you like a psychopath or, the, or they seemed to be narcissistic in a way that uh, harmed you, you are 100% free to say that. That's not a diagnosis. It's not a label. It's not a, it's not a judgment clinical call that you're making about another human being. Okay, so – when you know when Pace, patron Yasmin from Copenhagen says you know what is an emotional manipulator i don't i don't know again cuz it's not a clinical term but i'm guessing what the internet is referring to is you're with someone who tries to get you to fall in love with them uh by being very uh, nice 
and will pursue you a lot and will make you feel like you're on top of the world, like you, you know, you you tend not to trust people, but this person really got you to trust them. And you over time fell in love with them and became attached to them and then they just for whatever reason something happened and they just rejected you and then you start to construct a narrative about them that maybe they never did love me and they were just manipulating me the whole time i'm guessing that's a scenario that people would for themselves apply the term that person was an emotional manipulator so if if we're going off of that i don't know there's a number of other scenarios but if we're going off of that, why would that happen? What you know, if, if you're looking back on a relationship and you're just like that person got me to open up to them, they seemed, you know, totally trustworthy, and they said a lot of things, and then later did things that made me think the whole thing was just one big massive manipulation. Okay, so why would someone be that way? Well, again, one is is that they did love you in the beginning, and. They just fell out of love with you. That happens. <laughs> and it, it's a hard thing for people to accept. And it, you know, it makes sense. But uh, I think we can all, I hope, agree that uh, when you just ask someone, say you just grab a random 30-year-old and you're just like, okay, tell me about everyone that you thought you were in love with. You know, just list and, and really, you know, be generous. Be Don't be conservative here. Like, t- go back to when you were 10 years old and Let's go forward and just tell me everyone you thought you were in love with. And the person would probably rattle off, I don't know, 10 people, you know, maybe a few. Some people would be 25 people that they thought, well, you know, there were a lot of people that in the first few weeks I was thinking, well, I I think I'm really in love with this person. Okay. Uh, Now, often people will look back and say it wasn't really love. But, you know, that's just you now looking back at the time. If we asked you, uh, are you in love? You're like, yeah, I'm in love. And, you know, what if we told you? Uh, no, not real love. <laughs> You'd be like, uh, F you, it's real love. Okay. So love is in the moment. It's, you know, love isn't something we look back on. <laughs> love is something that we feel in the moment. So um, it, now uh, out of all those loves, so say you've had, you know, five to 10 moments where you were like, yep, I was in love. Uh, how many of those ended? How many of those loves uh, took a turn? And ended for one reason or another. Maybe you just got bored of the person. Maybe you fell in love with someone else. Maybe the person turned you off to a certain extent. You didn't. You fell out of love with them. So we can all agree that a lot of love, in fact, perhaps the majority of the times we fall in love, it ends. The love ends. And so when that happens to us, when we are the ones experiencing someone else who fell out of love with us. It's hard, I think, for us to accept that for whatever reason, they just fell out of love with us. But when we are the ones falling out of love, we totally understand it and justify it. We're just like, well, I fell out of love because we just grew apart. Or I fell out of love because, I don't know, I just – I was in a different phase of my life. Or I fell out of love because, I don't know, I, I don't know, things just changed. I don't know why. I just I, – yeah, I, you know, you, if it's, you, you're, the, your partner that you're breaking up with asks you – you know, why did you say that you loved me in the beginning of the relationship? And you're like, well, I, I don't know. I, I did love you in the beginning of the relationship. Well, why don't you love me now? I thought love was forever. You know, there's this whole idea of love is forever. It's not forever. <laughs> I mean, in terms of the way people often use the word love, clearly it's not forever. And that sucks. And I get it. 
and it hurts and it's perhaps a more uh, palatable narrative to say that, oh, that person was manipulating me the whole time. That person was evil. That person tricked me. And for some reason, I don't know why, for a lot of people, that's a more palatable narrative. To me, a much more palatable narrative is they loved me. They had issues, but they loved me. And then they fell out of love with me before I fell out of love with them. (laughs) And I still love them, but they no longer love me. But they did in the beginning. And uh, yeah, they lied to me about this and that because they didn't want to hurt my feelings. But that was a bad choice. They should have just told me or, you know, whatever the situation was. But anyway, but to finally answer your question, patron Yasmin, you know, what's wrong with the mother-child dynamic that created a son? You know, again, we have a male here that becomes emotionally manipulative. Um, so if I'm going to just say that someone actually is emotionally manipulative, okay. So this person is Machiavellian and they're they're dark tetrad stuff, they're narcissistic in all likelihood, they're psychopathic in all likelihood, meaning that they don't have empathy for other people. They don't have a capacity to care. They might even like to hurt other people. They might be sadistic. So I believe that's the dark tetrad, the dark four, uh, narcissism, psychopathy, Machiavellianism, and sadism. Uh, these people are extremely rare, by the way. We're talking on the order of you know less than a less than a percentage of people who have all these traits. And you know what's wrong with the mother child or the you know what's wrong with the attachment uh, dynamic of an of a child that would lead to that? We don't really know because it, it's always hard to study because these people are so rare that and they don't usually comply with assessments or they can't necessarily be trusted it's a hard it's it's a hard job to try to look at this group of people and determine what's common about their histories that would have led to that behavior uh, the common wisdom is that it's partially genetic meaning some people are born with a disposition in this direction and also partially environmental uh, every person that i know uh, famously, you know Jeffrey Dahmer, these kinds of people who have these traits, and every person I know professionally who have these traits had terrible childhoods, or at least something was particular about their childhood that was not ideal for their attachment. Um, so we're talking abuse, we're talking abandonment, we're talking um, you know drug addicted parents who had very chaotic lives. We're talking. Um, you know, parents that just leave their kids with other people, you know, all sorts of things. And and that can often lead to what I would call an emotional manipulator. All right, let's take a break. And when we get back, let's answer more emails. All right, we're back from the break. If you haven't become a patron of the podcast yet, that's how we know you like what we're doing. Uh, we get an email every time someone signs up, and it warms our hearts, particularly mine, <laughs> uh, truly. So if you are a patron, thank you so much. All right, this next email is from upper-tier patron Lara, or Lara, from Toronto. She writes, I've started dating again after a year-long relationship where I was ghosted. It's been a tough few months as my anxious attachment and abandonment traumas have been triggered by the ghosting. How do I bring up my anxious attachment when dating and at what point is it too soon? 
For instance, I get anxious when I don't hear from a date as I automatically think they are ghosting me. I am seeing a therapist to work through these attachment injuries. At what point in dating is it okay to open up about this anxiety? End of email. Well, up to your patron, Lara, I commend you for thinking about this. It's a wonderful thing to think about. You are aware of your, atta- your preoccupied attachment. You are going to therapy I, to work on that. I commend you, commend you, commend you. Uh, and now you're dating and you're, and you're recognizing it. You're like, I get preoccupied. I get very anxious when I don't hear back from someone and I automatically think they're ghosting me. So you are reflecting on your attachment reactivity in a differentiated manner. You're not allowing those notions to run wild. You're you're looking at it and you're thinking, I know it feels like I'm being ghosted, but there's no direct evidence that I'm being ghosted. It could just be that they just don't like texting right away or they're busy or maybe they're, they're unsure if they like me at this point and we're just beginning to date. I don't know. Maybe they're dating other people and that doesn't mean a bad thing either. So – uh, you're you're doing that. You're doing so much great work, and I commend you. And now you're asking, when and how do I bring up to people I'm dating that I have anxious, preoccupied attachment? You know, when do I bring it up, and how do I bring it up? It's a wonderful question, and I encourage more people to think about this. I don't know the answer to the question <laughs> because it really depends on so many things. It depends on what you want to do. It depends on the people you're dating. But I will say that I could absolutely see and have seen a situation where, say, it's, you know, date three or something. And you tell someone, you're just like, look, I just want to tell you something. I, you know, we're on our third date. and I don't want to be too heavy about this. I don't want to freak you out. But I just want to tell you because I just... I, this is the sort of person I am. I'm in therapy because I have had a lot of abandonment in my life. I was abandoned by my father when I was young, and I was abandoned by past relationships. And so I have this fear pretty much all the time that people are going to abandon me. And I've already had that feeling about you. Now, that's not on you, and you've been great, but I, I just have this terrifying fear that that you're going to abandon me um and uh it's totally unjustified it doesn't it doesn't have any reflection on you it has everything to do with my past and uh, so there's two things i i just feel like i want you to know one is is that i have that and so maybe you can uh take care of me a little or just uh consider that you know that i have that you don't have to of course because uh, that's my burden at this point and not yours. But uh, the other thing is that I might actually become reactive in a way that I'm not proud of if you don't get back to me right away. Again, that's not your fault. It's totally it's totally my, my dad's fault for abandoning me. It's But uh, if I text you and you don't text me back right away, uh, all those traumas kind of come bubbling up. And if I don't have an appointment with my therapist right away, like I'll have a couple days where I'm, I'm in a bad mood and I might lash out at you kind of. I might actually, when you do finally text me back, I might actually be a little snotty with you, which is totally unfair to you. And, uh, you know, 
this this is my burden, <laughs> but I, I, I don't know. I just wanted you to know that because uh, I'm in the past in dating, I, I would try to hide this and it wouldn't go well. And so, you know, I just wanted you to know that. Okay. So, uh, you know, some people say, oh, it's kind of corny. And as I always say, if health, if healthy is being corny, then be corny because look, you live life once people and, uh, why not live it honestly and why not live it in reality rather than trying to act like things don't exist, like your preoccupied attachment. Now, when do you do that? Well, I don't know. And honestly, if, if, if I did that to someone on a third date and they ran for the hills, then, you know, F them. I mean, if they can't handle, if they're not mature enough to handle a conversation like that, then I don't, I don't want to date them. So, uh, you know, feel free to say that on the first date, especially in the way that I said it, right? You notice the elements were, I explained it, I didn't blame them. Uh, I also said that it's not their burden and, and they don't have to deal with it if they don't want to, because they don't, you know, maybe they're just like, you know what, I just want a date. I don't want to talk about anything deep or anything, you know, that's, and that's fine. Uh, so uh, you notice that I, I gave them an out. I, I said reality but I didn't blame it on them, and I gave them an opportunity. Now, imagine if someone's like, "Oh my God, I'm so glad you said that," because you know I'm kind of that way too, and or I have a different issue. I have my own things, you know, and and I just I really admire that you you know bring that up because that's just amazing, and it makes me um, like you even more. Well, you know, marry that person. <laughs> All right, let's go into another email. All right, this next email is from upper tier patron Audrey. She writes, I feel like I have this fearful avoidant attachment style based on some light research, and I want to understand it better. With my past relationships, I build intense emotional connections with people, rush into relationships, suddenly become confused as to how I felt, and eventually would cheat on the person and leave. I hate that I do this. And I don't want to keep hurting people that I care about. Can you help explain this phenomenon and how I can better, how I can do better when building future relationships? End of email. First off, I commend your wisdom. You're taking responsibility. You have a lot of self-awareness. That's fantastic. And the answer I have is, you know, therapy might be the only place you can find out. And I know I always say that, but it really is the only way. Uh, you need someone that is an expert to explore these things with you. Um, there's a reason why we have these experts in the world is because they are needed. And uh, the personalization of that exploration is very important. As I said before, I'll work with people who, you know, they're smart. They understand. And eventually we will get to a place where they very much understand their attachment style. They very much understand their relational traumas. But that does not change the fact that they will be in denial about it sometimes. It'll be hard for them to remember. There are relational trauma reactions that will convince them of old ways of thinking. And it takes years. It takes a long time. You know, there, it's not uncommon for me to work with a client. And after six months, they fully – I fully assess them. And they fully understand my assessment of them. And then begins the journey of really applying that and healing and experiencing new things. And it takes a long time. So even if I did ha somehow have the answer, it would take a long time. But anyway, hypotheses to explore 
Yeah, fearful attachment is one. Fearful avoidant or disorganized sometimes it's called. It's maybe. Uh, it's a maybe. I don't hear fear in what you're talking about, but it's possible that you are experiencing fear and you're not aware of it or you, didn't, or you just simply didn't mention it in the email. Fearful avoidant people tend to experience a fair amount of actual fear when they get close to people. Just a, a real sense of terror that they're going to get hurt or just an unnamed fear that it's hard for them to um, uh, put a, you know, a, sort of a word to. Anyway, so uh, I don't, I'm not really hearing that, but it's possible. I mean, definitely insecure attachment is probably present. Um, there's a flavor of insecure attachment and personality disorder that we call passive aggressive. Now, in the common language, passive aggressive is used in a certain way. This is the clinical definition that was developed decades ago and is different, uh, much more precise and much more comprehensive and much more, um, I don't know, valid. And essentially, in a nutshell, you can listen to my whole deep dive on passive aggressive personality sorting. Go to our website, find out when that was. I, I think it was, I don't know, a few years ago. Anyway, you have to be a patron. But uh, people who have passive aggressive personality, for reasons related to their childhood, early childhood, they will uh, feel hurt and scared of people, as everyone does. And their way of coping with it is through passive aggression. They will, they will have hostile uh, motivation, and, then, and they will express that hostility in a hidden or passive way. And one of the ways that some people will express that hidden hostility is through cheating and through leaving. It's uh, it's an interesting phenomenon that it's hard to describe well enough. But in a nutshell, say you have someone who is in a relationship and they have a lot of relational traumas growing up and they're really desperate for closeness and it's you know on their mind a lot. And they enter into a relationship, they, they start to establish some closeness. And with that closeness comes worry about being hurt, right? The closer you get to someone, the more power they have over you, the more they can hurt your feelings, the more they can devastate you. And with that power, um, when you feel that when you have certain relational traumas that lead to passive aggression, and you feel that power that someone has over you, even though they're not using that power in a bad way against you, you uh, if you have passive-aggressive personality spectrum, then you will actually be very hostile about that power. You don't want people to have that power over you because in the past that meant bad things for you. And so one of the ways that you can strike back against that power is through hidden hostility, and a form of that is through cheating. And so that's another possibility. The other possibility is that you lack a connection with yourself and you don't really know what you want and you end up in uh, being attracted to people and engaging in relationships that you actually don't really want to be in. And then at a certain point, you cheat. But another way of saying that is that you never really wanted to be in the exclusive relationship to begin with, but you didn't really know that. And so by cheating, you're expressing this need to just get out of the relationship. That's another possibility. All right, let's go on to another email. All right, this next email is from listener Angie from Sacramento. She writes, I'm hoping for some input regarding my eight-year-old son and attachment. My son has always been very sensitive and emotional since infancy. I have always made an effort to identify his emotions and reinforce those feelings 
uh, and that they are that they are okay and fine. But I fear that practicing this more nurturing approach has led to pacifying his emotional outbursts. At eight years old, he is still having fits when he feels misunderstood or when he asks to turn off the video game or when he is asked to turn off the video games. He will stomp, yell, cry, huge tears, and find it incredibly difficult to calm down for a length of time. I have tried a few other approaches as well, like having him sit in a calm room until he is more calm, and then we talk about the situation and how his emotional outbursts could have been prevented and expressed differently. But to be frank, I am not sure if any one of the methods I have practiced is the right one. I want my son to have a strong uh, attachments and awareness of his emotions, but I think he has reached an age where he fits, where his fits and temper tantrums are no longer age appropriate. Are there any emotional supportive methods to prevent or correct temper tantrums? I would so appreciate your input and truly respect your expertise. End of email. Well, the first thing I'll say, as I often say, is parenting is complicated. And anyone who uh, gives advice about these kinds of things and acts like parenting is not complicated, doesn't understand what parenting is, and has never been a professional who has helped people. I have helped hundreds, if not thousands, of families um, with parenting, and this is a very frequent thing that I've helped people with. And one of the benefits of me having worked, and you know, I- I'm talking like working with families for years, right? going to the home, sitting down with the kids, sitting down with the parents, observing the parents, advising the parents, talking with the other siblings, like just going round and round. And one of the benefits that you have as a expert and professional with my ex, with my uh, experience is you learn, wow, like parenting is complicated, man. <laughs> like there's a lot of different nuances. And what a, a, a lot of simple-minded people will think is that what worked for them works for all kids, and it's possible, but it's not likely. You know, what, what worked for your kid who had temper tantrums might not work for another kid with temper tantrums. It's just really, really complicated. So uh, I, I just want to put that out there. The second thing is that obviously get a specialist who will work with the whole family. Um, I was a specialist, and I I didn't do this a lot, but I did enough of it over the first 10 years of my career um, going into the home, this sort of thing. And uh, you you have to find a specialist that will work with the whole family. There are, quote-unquote, specialists that won't work the parents, which drives me nuts because how are you going to help the bigger picture if you just talk to the parents? So personally, I would find a family therapist who specializes in 8-year-olds who have behavioral problems. Uh, this, the, second, the third thing I'll say is that temper tantrums are the worst, especially if they're chronic and especially if they're extended into later childhood. It's very stressful. It could be embarrassing and heart-wrenching. And no parent is you know, happy about temper tantrums. You, one, absorb their um, you know, just unbridled emotion. It's, you know, it's hard not to absorb that, particularly if you don't have – someone that you can pass best case scenario when you have an eight-year-old who's having a lot of temper tantrums is you have like five adults and whoever uh whatever set of adults has the most capacity to deal with that they're the ones that step forward and the other ones take a step back a lot of times what we're looking at is a single parent with a kid like this and that is not sustainable um you cannot parent 
a kid who throws these kinds of tantrums by yourself uh, very well. It's hard to do. So it takes a village, particularly with kids who throw temper tantrums like this. So it, you end up judging yourself, like, what am I doing wrong? So, you know, it's uh, – and anyone who, uh, you know, doesn't uh, – you know, who looks at this is just like, well, I dealt with it with my kid in this really easy way. And I – well, okay, fine. Good for you. But you don't know – you know, by the nature of this email from listener Angie, I, I know what she's talking about. I've been there. And the kind of temper tantrums that I'm quite sure I would see if I were actually in the home are severe and long-lasting and unreasonable and powerful and uh, unrelenting and very stressful and nothing works to stop it. And it it is uh, – it's rough. You know, it is very, very rough and that's why it takes a village because – if it's that much stress, it needs to be passed around and shared. So some things to possibly consider are that his emotional outbursts are potentially within normal limits. He's eight years old. Uh, you know, I, people often will uh, – everyone has sort of a different gauge of what is, quote, unquote, age appropriate. And for some, a temper tantrum at eight is normal, and for others, it's not. And there's no real way to measure that. I'd have to see it. Um, but you know, it's possible that if you just ride this out another couple of years, it'll just go away and that he just extended his temper tantrums a little bit longer than other kids in the same way that sometimes kids develop language a little later. Some kids learn to walk a little later. Some kids learn math a little later. There's a lot of capacities that kids will develop over time developmentally and not every kid is the same. So it's possible that it's just, you know, just normal and you're doing everything. Right. The, the second thing is that it could be d- dispositional, meaning that it's not an indication of your parenting and there's really nothing you can do about it. You said that from the time he was born, he was sensitive. So that points in that direction. You could see it as just the way he was born. He's just very sensitive, very reactive emotionally. Uh, it's also possible that he suffers from mood disorder, anxiety disorder, this sort of thing. And, of course, a specialist would assess for that. But it's also possible that it's just the way that he is. And, and throughout his life, there's going to be pros and cons to being sensitive. You're experiencing some of the cons right now, which is temper tantrums. But there are pros. Pros like you just really understand your emotions well or you pick up on the emotions. About, you might have a lot of empathy for other people. You might be very creative. You know, there's a lot of different pros to being sensitive. So uh, who knows? But um, my, my point with that is that, you, you know, a specialist might find that that's the conceptualization and thus, you know, just stay the course of their parenting. Because that brings me to my third thing, which is that your approach parenting-wise sounds sound, sounds good <laughs> from your description. I can't tell. I'd have to observe it. But from your description, it sounds great. You're helping him calm down. You're talking about emotions. You're helping him communicate his emotions in different ways. That's fantastic. It, you know, so from your description, uh, I can't imagine changing that. <laughs> like, what what are you gonna what are you gonna change that to? And, and that brings me to my fourth point here: is when I hear the the phrase "age appropriate," I get a little worried. Honestly, uh, I, I don't know. But often that is associated with some sort of self-judgment as a parent or maybe even people uh, pressuring you, like school people or, I don't know, just other people pressuring you as a parent. I'm just like, I don't think that is age appropriate. 
Now, there is such a thing as age appropriateness for sure, but we have to be careful when we go down that road because uh, some parents, when they go down that road of like, my kid is having temper tantrums that are not age appropriate, and thus I need to discipline the, the kid. That's often the what they're really getting at is you need to discipline this child. You need to not coddle them. You need to not just listen to their emotions. You need to put them in time out. You need to tell them that there's a limit. You need to tell them to stop. Now, as I said from the beginning, parenting is complicated. And I'm not saying that those strategies aren't going to work. Maybe they will. And that's what a specialist would experiment with you. I've, I've done that sort of work with parents. But what often happens is that parents are doing great at, from your description, you know, just giving the kids space, having a conceptualization that the kid doesn't have any control over these temp- temper tantrums, you know, just staying the course and just suffering through it as best you can and, and not really thinking there's much more you can do about it. Then an outside person comes in, a teacher, someone you're dating, maybe your parents, and they're just like, that. that's not age appropriate. You need to crack down on that. And then parents will go, oh, you know, I need to crack down. And then they start to crack down. And now we have, uh, now we have a problem. <laughs> now we have a kid who has a disposition of sensitivity and he is being ostracized and disciplined for something he doesn't have any control over. And there's a lot of examples like this. When kids have ADHD, when kids are highly sensitive, highly sensitive people, when kids have anxiety, whatever it is, there's this knee-jerk reaction from a lot of people that you need to discipline it. And I'm here to tell you that discipline does not take away sensitivity. <laughs> you know, it's just, it's just not going to happen. The, the key assessment uh, bifurcation that I would engage in with families like this is does the kid have control because if the kid has control then yeah the kid is just manipulating everyone the kid is retaining some old behavior that they've learned works with people Uh, usually kids don't want to do that kids usually want to grow up they usually want to be you know a big boy who knows how to handle things and so that's not usually the case but but some kids will because some kids will just regress purposely as a way of manipulating people around them and you can usually tell as a parent and as an expert, I could usually tell after a while that, oh, that kid is that kid's doing it on purpose. You know, that kid is drumming up. Now, now sometimes they can they can um, you know f- manufacture an emotional state that they become out of control, but in the beginning they're very much manufacturing it. Uh, but that's rare, and it's not it's not very common. It certainly can happen. But often what I would find is that the kid really had no control over what was happening, that they were not trying to do this, and that they might have some volition in the moment, but really they're becoming overwhelmed very quickly, and it's uh, virtually impossible for them to control it. One of the things you look to is different contexts for this sort of thing. Does the kid only throw temper tantrums when he's at home and at school, he's totally fine. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that it's a manipulation. It could just mean that he's really just clamping down on his behavior and emotions at school. And then when he gets home, it just it's just too much to sustain that level of, of clamping down. And then he lets loose. So it's not quite sure, but it, it is a, a, a data point to, to notice. So, you know, you cannot discipline this sort of thing away. And it's a temptation that parents fall into, and I get it, but I don't recommend going there. 
unless a specialist were to guide you in that direction. All right, let's go to another email. All right, this last email is from patron Hande. Hande? Handy from Istanbul. Patron from Istanbul says, I want to start by saying thank you for changing my life. I had a difficult childhood and had some issues in my life. Before finding your podcast, I was desperately trying to understand myself. I've been in therapy too, but never had, but never heard of attachment theory in therapy. I've listened to your attachment theory deep dive a couple of times now. Even the little I understand has changed a lot for me in my life. Besides that, your open-minded and non-judgmental approach on things really helped me gain a perspective in life. So I don't know how to express my gratitude. So just chiming in here. That warms my heart. Patron from Istanbul, that's super nice of you. And it is just incredibly humbling to think that I uh, and you across the planet are connecting. That's fantastic. Going on with your email. I am a preschool teacher. Children are too dependent on their moms in my culture. In fact, most of them have never been away from their mothers until they start preschool, which is when I come into the picture. You can see a lot of crying children on the first day of school. After a couple of days of talking and trying to convince them, and when I see the child understands the process, I start to give my attention to other kids and ignore the crying child. But when they seem to be interested in anything other than crying, I instantly give my attention to them, and this always works. I've never had a kid uh, to keep crying a week uh, after a week in my eight years of career as a preschool teacher. But now I'm wondering, in the light of attachment theory, is this a healthy thing to do for these kids, or what would be more helpful to them? Can you talk about that? End of email. Yeah, uh, as I said before, it's very complicated. It's largely dependent on what's happening to them before entering preschool, you know, what the attachment was like between the child and the parents, what's happening outside of school. So there's there's a lot you don't have any control over. Um, but uh, just kind of looking at your – and I have a lot of experience with this too because my mom had a daycare in my house growing up and I observed my mom do something quite similar to what you're talking about where – she would get a new – and all the daycare kids were um, preschool or, or younger. You know, they were two to four years old. And in my house, in my own house, and we didn't have a large house, there would be 15 three-year-olds. <laughs> Sometimes taking naps in my bed. I couldn't even go in my room and I got home from school. And uh, so I really saw my mom – you know, right before my eyes every day deal with this sort of thing. You know, whenever she got a new kid, it was always um, a chance that where the kid would have a real hard time adjusting. Some kids adjusted well and some kids didn't. And my mom was just a master at being able to integrate the child into the system. And she was a master at making kids feel understood and cared about, but also my mom was a master at not um, letting kids get away with uh, purposely regressing and, and ruining things for everyone. Um, she, she was just very, very good at it. And um, it's very complicated. There's a lot of nuances to this, and there's not anything I'm going to be able to say that um, is going to fully encapsulate like what one should do in a situation like this. But it's great that you're thinking about attachment because that is something to consider. You know, 
Some kids develop insecure attachment in part due to their experiences in daycare and preschool. Um, you know, when you drop off a kid at daycare or preschool, there is a risk that the child will experience that as an emotional abandonment and a lack of security. Um, they're, they're also so just just that fact of being separated from one's parents can actually be trouble for a kid. It's always trouble. It's just a matter of to what degree, right? Also, in daycare and in preschool, there can be bad things that can happen as a result of interactions with other kids or the teachers or the daycare 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 runners that can lead to attachment insecurity as well. So there's a lot that we can say, but um, just a side note here: you know, we have a society, and I maybe in in Istanbul as well. Uh, but in the United States, I can speak to this culture that you know we value money, capitalism, and working, and it's very common for it to be assumed that pretty quickly into a child's life they're going to go to daycare, and this isn't always a good decision. Now, I'm not saying that women are should stay home with the kids. That's often sort of the uh, rhetoric where this goes. But it, you know, we evolved as a species who were never separated from our family and our tribe. We, you know, there, there was no office that mom and dad went to a uh, hundred thousand years ago. We um, gathered food. We, you know, did all of our <laughs> cavemen things uh, with the kids either on our person or nearby. And thus kids were never faced with having being separated from us. So, it, it makes sense that we have to be careful about that. And we, and we can't just give into a cultural norm of, well, you know, at, two parents, they often work. I have a career I have to do. And so daycare is just going to be part of the thing. As soon as I can get back to work, the better. Now, this is very complicated. I'm guessing I'm triggering some people. Most parents will send their kids to daycare. Certainly most parents send their kids to, to preschool. And many kids grow up fine having been in that situation for sure uh, i went to preschool when i when i was a child and and really loved it as a kid from i i sort of i remember it actually i have pictures from back then and i remember really liking it now having said that my mom was actually at the preschool so you know maybe that helped me but so i'm not saying that preschool and daycare are bad things but i'm saying that it it needs to be carefully considered in light of attachment theory um, there's a there's a lot of different things to look at, which which I'll get into in, in a second. So, uh, really, what we're thinking about are outcomes. And as a preschool teacher, you have this system that you acclimate children to the to the preschool, and you say, you know, you really try to give the kid a lot of attention at first, and then if they keep crying, which they often do, then you give your attention to other kids. And when the kid stops crying and engages in some other activity, then you return and give your attention back to that kid. And you say this always works, that you in your eight years, you've never had a kid crying, 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 cry. You, they eventually give up on the crying and they integrate themselves into the system. So there are two possibilities, both of which, you know, I just don't know on a kid by kid basis, but two possibilities. One possibility is that the kid, this is actually a good thing that you're doing and 
this is something that the kid needs to go through and that you're dealing with it really well. There is some wisdom to just turning away when a kid decides to cry and uh, have a fuss. There, you know, that does work sometimes and doesn't harm. The second possibility is that some of the kids are being harmed in that they're just giving up. There is an old tradition of just leaving your toddler in the crib in a bedroom and closing the door and you just have kids cry it out. Now, this is complicated, as I was saying earlier, because, you know, some kids will cry as a way of manipulating and they benefit from learning how to, you know, sleep in the crib by themselves and they benefit from learning how to, you know, have some independence at a certain age. Uh, but there are other kids who this is just not good for or it's not good for uh, their current stage. And I'll get into how to evaluate that. And it's very it's very complicated. But um, some kids, if you do this technique with where you turn away from them as they're crying, they might actually be giving up, meaning that they are concluding, oh, I can't depend on people. I can't depend on her. I can't depend on anyone. So – I'm going to cut off myself from my feelings and I'm just I'm just not going to pay attention to my needs because no one else is going to pay attention to me. There's a lot of kids who are left in the crib by their parents and neglected in this way, uh, even though the parents are following what they believe to be the right thing to do. And the outcome is, you know, what they want. They want the kid to stop crying, right? They want the kid to sleep through the night. Okay, mission accomplished, but at what cost? Has the kid concluded that they just can't depend on you, and, and they're just they just gave up on attachments? That happens, you know. We call this avoidant attachment. So, so it's very complicated. So you can go to daycare, you can go to preschool, and things can work out. You can not go to preschool and daycare, and things cannot work out. So there's no there's no guideline here of like, well, if you want a healthy kid, don't send him to daycare. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is the following. These are the key things to evaluate, which are you know kind of hard to evaluate. But these are the questions you have to ask because it all depends on the child's perception. As I was saying earlier with the previous email, kids are born with a disposition and that you know they bring a personality to the table. And so their perception of the situation changes. So you could have three kids. You could send them to the same daycare and the same preschool and do all the same things, all three of the kids. And one of the kids could adjust much more well than the other kids because they're just dispositionally set up to deal with that. Uh, so it all has to be tailored to the child's disposition. So the questions to ask are, is the child getting their attachment needs met often enough? Now, no kid gets their attachment needs met all the time. It's just the the trauma of growing up. And, and I say trauma in a very real sense, you know. There's always, you know, when I teach my... Uh, students, and some of them are kind of struggling with the notion that their parents might have made some mistakes. I sort of release everyone I, uh, from that notion. I just say, every child has cried for their parents, and their parents didn't come soon enough. Every child was put to bed at night, kicking and screaming, even though they didn't want to go to bed. Every kid has been denied things that they wanted and uh, felt devastated that their parents didn't give them that thing. You know, 
every kid, any parent who parents a kid, you notice those moments where your kid is, is just really upset at you, but there's no way around it, right? You're just like, no, you can't um, walk out into the street because you're going to get run over by a car. No, you can't just wander out the front door, even though you really want to. No, you can't have my cell phone because my cell, I need my cell phone. No, you can't grab the steering wheel of the car. No, you can't eat that thing because it's a rock and you'll die. The kid doesn't understand it. All they feel in the moment is just they're just being denied something and they're devastated. It feels bad to be rejected in that way. Or no, you can't sleep with mommy and daddy past the age of four. You know, like you're just you're going to have to sleep in your bed alone eventually. Um, You know. I'm not saying that's what everyone's supposed to do, but I'm saying that every kid early in life goes through some very difficult things. So what I'm saying is often enough. Is a child getting their attachment needs met often enough? Now, how do you know if that's happening? Well, it's hard to know, but you gauge it based on the kid. You know, a lot of parenting uh, recommendations, they'll say, you know, do this and do that and do this. Well, okay, but... How do you know if it's working? Well, the only way you know if it's the best thing for the kid is by gauging the kid. This is what attachment's all about, being attuned to the kid. You have to attune, meaning you're tuning in to the vibes of the child. You're paying attention to their emotional state and reacting in the moment. You know, some kids are, you know, sensitive and needy. They're born that way. And they are very frequently needing you to hug them or to be next to them or to pay attention to them. And another kid might just be born a little bit more independent and maybe a little bit more manipulative. And thus, you don't want to entertain those manipulations. Anyone who's raised kids and been around more than one child understands that kids are different when they are born. (laughs) You might not realize how they're different until they're six you know, six months, 12 months old, but you see those differences. You might not know what those differences are going to blossom into, but, you know, every nine-month-old child is different. Every nine-month-old child that I've met has already some behavioral traits, and you can see it. So there's, you know, being mellow, there's being curious, there's kids who are very interested in electronics very early. (laughs) There are kids who have a lot of eye contact. There are kids... Now, there are things at the edges of that disposition when we can talk about things that are um, disorders or labels or something, but there's a lot of range in between there. Anyway, so does the child feel attuned to? Does the child feel as though as they're experiencing the world that their caretakers notice them and respond in a way that helps them? Is the child getting enough attention? Is the child getting enough state, uh, enough of a safe space to explore who they are and what their emotions are? Does the child feel like people care about them? Is the child protected from undue negative experiences? So this is, this is all child per, child-centered, right? It's not, it's not this is the way to parent, right? It's how is the child experiencing this? And that's a pain in the butt, Right? As a preschool teacher, you're like, I don't have time to get to know every kid and, you know, their particular disposition. I have to get them to fit into this system where I can't give them my full attention. I need them to realize they're a part of a crowd now. 
And although their mothers usually always give them 100% of attention, I can't give them that. And they just have to adjust to that. Now, there's some wisdom to that, for sure. Every kid has to learn that lesson at some point. But some kids are going to be able to adjust to that more easily, and some kids aren't. Some kids already come to the table with attachment insecurity from their time before you ever met them, when you met them at preschool, and some kids won't. So it's, it's kid by kid specific. So when you say uh, that you have this system where you essentially ignore them uh, while they're crying, uh, not in a bad way, but you're just like, look, you know, you can cry, you can sit in that chair and you can cry, but I'm not going to entertain it. And as soon as you come around and realize, look, look at all the other kids, they're, they're having a good time. As soon as the other, you know, the crying kid says, oh, I think I'll, I think I'll play like the other kids. And then you start giving them attention again and you're very nice and you you know, and you look at that situation and you're like, yeah, that always works. Well, based on that description, impossible to tell if something good or bad is happening. Now, based on your descriptions, it's quite likely that good things are happening, but it's also possible that bad things are happening, that the child, because of the disposition or attachment style they already bring to the table, is actually giving up and saying, you know what? All right, I learned my lesson. Don't be vulnerable. Don't express your needs. Don't even notice your needs and, and fit in and don't create waves and don't you know, ruffle people's feathers, adapt to other people's needs. We all know as adults, some of us are like that, right? Some of us as adults believe that we don't matter, believe that we can't be vulnerable with people, have a hard time connecting with our emotions. Why are we like that? Well, because when we were young, no one cared about our emotions. People made us feel like we were worthless. People made us feel like we didn't matter. And innocent parenting or preschool teaching methods can actually reinforce that in some children. Now, I'm not saying you shouldn't do this. I don't know. You would have to assess it on a child-by-child basis, and it's a lot of amorphous assessment of, you know, is the child getting enough attunement? It's hard to measure that. Like I said, not every kid is attuned to all the time, so what does that mean? And you can't even gauge their behavior afterwards as a good uh, indicator either because, like I said, some of the kids might be you know, uh, behaving well, but it's only because they gave up on humans. So, you know, it's just hard to know. Now, is it your job to do this? No, I don't think so. It's the parent's job. Uh, And if there are indications of issues, it's uh, hiring a specialist to help with that. So I hope that is uh, uh, sufficiently ambiguous to communicate how complicated raising children is and that when something works, we might not know if it's actually working. Like I said, you know, earlier, when you leave a kid, you know, you have a kid that's crying all the time and can't be, can't stand being left alone. Well, all parents understand, look, eventually the kid's going to have to learn how to sleep on their own, whether it's now or later, eventually, you know, they can't sleep with us all the time. And they just have to realize that it's bedtime and they need to go sleep. Okay, every parent understands that. Um, Now, attachment parenting-oriented people would say, well, when the kid is ready, and maybe that's when the kid's eight years old, that's when we actually put them in another room. Then there's nothing wrong with that either. But, you know, there's there's a little – there's room there, obviously. 
And one parent decides, you know what? We're just going to break this child of this crying. We're going to put him in the room at the crib and we're just going to – they're just going to cry it out and we're going to walk away. Well, it, and and at the end of whatever period of time you do this, you know, a week or so, the kid just stops crying. Okay, mission accomplished. You 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 achieve that mission. It's impossible to know based on that description I just said – whether that's a good outcome or a bad outcome, because you have to look at the child holistically. What happened to that child? Did the child just learn, you know what? I can do things on my own. I don't need my parents. I succeeded. I slept on my, and my, you know, I feel like I'm a big boy now who can sleep in his own room. Is that the narrative? Is that the experience the child went through? Or my parents don't care about me. No matter how much I try to reach out to them, they don't love me, and I give up on humans. So you have to... You have to be attuned to a child overall holistically to even get a sense of the answer to that question. You can't just apply a parenting approach to a child without checking in with how the child is reacting to that. And this really applies to a wide variety of parenting approaches, by the way. And and this is why it's problematic when people who had good experiences with a particular parenting technique with with their own kids uh, just judge every other parent for their way of parenting. Like something that just drives me crazy is you'll be at at the grocery store and, uh, you know, there's a, uh, you know, parents and their three kids are in the cart and they're pretty wild. Right, they're they're making a lot of noise. They're they're picking up things off the shelf and throwing it around. And the parents are you know doing their best to somehow manage it, and that creates anxiety around people watching this. And and then some other parent comes up and and talks to the parents and just says like, you know, I noticed that your kids are out of control. You really need to discipline them more. Okay. This drives me crazy because it's possible, I guess, that that's uh, accurate. But it's also possible that uh, the the parents are actually doing the best thing for the kids at this moment. And you just don't know the, the bigger picture. You don't know where those parents are coming from. There's so many other possibilities that could be happening where if you knew the full story, you would agree with their sort of hands-off approach at the grocery store. You don't know. You have no idea. Now, there are certain things that you can say that are very likely problematic. Uh, It was, I don't know, a few years ago, I was at a pizza place in Edmonds, Washington, uh, just north of Seattle, and there was this parent who, he comes around the corner with his young uh, daughter, kid was, I don't know, six or something, and the dad was just having a very childish argument with the girl. It was almost like the dad was showing off to me and everyone else that was sitting at the, it was an out, it was outdoor seating. And I I got this impression that dad was like trying to show off, trying to, I don't know, be a, make it kind of jokey, but he was, he was, arguing with his six-year-old child and his six-year-old and it was clear that this was an ongoing thing because a six-year-old girl was uh, very adept at verbal argument with her father and and i was assuming it was the father i mean it, it, in all likelihood it was i mean at the very least it's a caretaker and 
in no universe can I imagine that being a good parenting approach <laughs> to argue like a child for long period of time. And I think it was aggressive and calling her names, obviously, you know, like emotional abuse. And so, so there's a line. So if you see something in the grocery store that is beyond a certain threshold, then yeah, something bad might be happening for sure. So I'm not saying that you can't judge other parents, but uh, there's a, there's a much wider variety of potential good parenting approaches at that moment that um, a lot of other parents might not uh, understand. And as someone, as I said, who's treated hundreds, if not thousands of families in situations like this, I'm here to tell you, it's just hard to tell. You, you really just have to know what the bigger picture is for the family. I mean, j- just throwing out some possibilities. So, you know, you have the situation in the grocery store, the kids are out of control. It's possible that the parents just adopted these kids and the kids are normally completely out of control, but right now they're just kind of out of control. And uh, it's a win, right? And they're trying to acclimate the children to the world and they're trying to acclimate the family to each other and they're, uh, they're picking their battles. And instead of battling the rambunctiousness in the grocery store, um, they're allowing the kids to feel safe enough to express themselves. And so they're, they're making that calculation while they're at the grocery store. That's a possibility. Um, and, and there's, you know, hundreds of other possibilities that might, uh, we might find that justifies what's happening in the moment. And also, I just wish that parents in public were just kinder and less judgmental of each other. Um, you know, it's hard to parent kids <laughs> And uh, let's just take it easy on each other and, and not jump down people's throats. Anyway. All right. So that was me answering emails about attachment. And I did not get to even half of the email. So I'm going to have to do a part two. All right. Tune in next time when I do part two. And everyone out there, please take care of yourself because you deserve it. You really, really do. 